their audience is not your audience on this week's Always Listening. Welcome to Always Listening. We are your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Jay, and I have the silent killer. <laughs> you got the funk, Jay, the crud. You know, here's the thing. You didn't even go to a convention or a conference to get it. No, That's but what's the real shame. You know who did? My father. Who? My father <laughs> visited from Florida. Uh, and he, he actually he spent a little bit of time. He's coming back for another couple days, and then, he, and then he'll be leaving to go back to Florida, but he's currently away. Uh, yeah, he brought the he brought the funk, and, and it, it, it's supposed to go the other way around, right? Isn't the silent killer supposed to go from the north to the south, not the south to the north? This is a, yeah, I I think that's definitely. Uh, the, I mean, the cold fronts descend at least. I think that's where the cold should come from too. I don't know. The other thing too, this is this is what's really crazy. So my dad came up and he was a mess, like he was just, blah, 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 blah. and then uh, I'm sitting there going, ha. I'll be fine. I go to the gym every day. I deal with that <laughs> funk that's all over those machines because nobody ever cleans those things, except I do after I'm done. And then I wash my hands really good and all that good stuff. Anyway, and then my wife, who has, you know, all sorts of medicines that say, uh, you know, avoid sick people. Uh, and, and and she she got it, but she she got it in like 12 hours later, she was 100%. She's back to 100%. Me yesterday, I'm sitting there, and, I, and I'm, I'm not like on my deathbed, but I got the fever chills and the body. I, I was like, "What is this? How did I get the fever out of this? Like, what? How did this happen?" And then I'm on day two, and I, and now it's moved from my, you know, nose to my like, stop. Enough, enough complaining about a cold, but. <laughs> I do joke, the silent killer, the reason why I call it the silent killer is because professional sports teams, especially football teams, will start dealing with the silent killer right around the playoffs. And that's when you get the silent killer running through the locker room during the playoffs, and that playoff game, yeah, you're in some trouble. So it's I, I like to call it the silent killer. That's interesting. I hadn't really considered that, but yeah, obviously the 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 cold and flu season's an issue for athletes too. I I read that interesting article in Jay. I know since you're deep into sports, that uh, it's crossed your desk as well. You know, there was the big study recently on NBA players and the fact that sleep is such an issue for them. Mm. The uh, constant back to backs, the travel, the late nights. Never mind the lifestyle that some of them want to live as well. All of that contributes to just interminable chronic sleep loss effectively and so these guys are shortening their careers and and their lives in some cases by really really drastic sleep loss interesting stuff even if you're not a big sports fan uh jay we don't have any of that to talk to you about no. today we don't have many numbers for you either we've been a uh, glutton for punishment working through the statistics over the past couple of weeks uh but today we do have some interesting advice for you there's some cool data that we're going to be talking about today, Jay, from a couple of different big media agencies. However, right off the top, we're going to put a big caveat on it. It's the title of the episode. Their audience is not necessarily your audience. And in this case, it's probably not your audience. However, that doesn't mean that the data is not useful. Right, Jay? 
There are still some interesting caveats in the in the research that these companies did. I also question maybe even the process a little bit because there's always a question when it comes to podcast analytics and how effective are they really in tracking real people. I mean, we've gone through the IAB certification. Uh, we know that there's differences in the way that the companies that are certified are counting. Uh, companies that have announced that they were certified weren't really certified. There's all sorts of different interesting things when it comes to counting your downloads and the people that are downloading them. So I do question that aspect. But ultimately, what was discovered was the the age-old thing, and I think it's Dave Jackson who says this all the time, be where your audience is. And whether he was the one who coined it or not, he's the one that I will attribute that to for the rest of my podcasting career. You need to be where your audience is. And in this particular instance, we're talking about Pacific content and the research they did for their clients. And the research found where their audience is, and it makes complete and total sense. Um, it's really interesting. The link is in the show notes so you can read the full thing. But uh, effectively, what they're highlighting here, and then they're giving you the data that they found, uh, Chartable released Smart Links, which is interesting because, Jay, I know media hosts are starting to offer this too. I don't think they're the only ones, but I, I'm going to use them as the example because I know specifically they do offer this. Libsyn. Libsyn now allows you can put a tracking code in and then share that specific link with that tracking code to different places. Elsie Escobar and Rob Walsh have talked about this on their uh, show, The Feed from Libsyn, about that they've used it in a competition. They both shared the link to an episode to see which one got more traction and and more you know like uh, actual contacts on the episode uh, from their audiences. First of all. You gotta have a pretty big audience for this to matter, <laughs> right? That's the first thing that people need to know. If you if you're literally just starting out and you're sharing your show with your you know personal Facebook uh, followers, and and we're talking about dozens or hundreds instead of thousands, then these links, these sort of tracking things, aren't going to work for you anyway. Um, you need to just take the advice that you just said uh, from Dave there and just be everywhere. I don't do any of this, Jay. I personally, I don't do any of this tracking at all. I, I even turned off the tracking on my uh, website, on my business website. I turned off all but the very basic of cookies. I want to know what the popular content is on my site as far as like what uh, pages get landed on the most, but that's it. That's all that I'm really looking at. And the reason is for me, I'm, I'm using engagement to give me the feedback on where I'm putting more effort. So if I'm if I start getting traction and engagement and interaction on Instagram, then I'm going to spend some more time there. I got a little bit of traction and interaction on YouTube. I'm going to try to spend a little bit more time there and see if it continues to return that investment. Um, I, I'm feeling it out that way. But what did Pacific Content find when they began using these tracking links? So their whole idea was, well, what what social shares? Are, are most effective for us? Where are we able to garner a larger audience? Where can we be that's going to get us a, a bigger return of investment? Understand Pacific Content creates podcasts, uh, creates branded podcasts for companies. And we're talking major companies like Mozilla, uh, Slack, um, just to name a couple off the top of my head. I, it, while you were talking, I was trying to look for some of their other uh 
for, for some of their other clients and couldn't find them uh, rather quickly. But so they, they crunched the numbers. They used the, the, the tracking link. And this is what they found. They found they had a 29% conversion rank from LinkedIn. That was their highest conversion rate. They had a 25% conversion rate from Instagram. We'll come back to that one. Uh, 8% conversion rate from Facebook and a 6% conversion rate from Twitter. Now, I want you to remember the clientele that we're talking about here again. And now you understand why their conversion rates would be better on these particular places. Because I can tell you right now, as a sports podcaster, this chart would be, it wouldn't be up to 29%, but it would be reversed. Twitter would be the number one place for a sports podcast to get a conversion. LinkedIn would be the last. And so that's sort of where you got to sort of understand where your audience is coming from and what they're looking for and where they are. I know there's a lot of people that have a lot of success using Reddit, for example. Uh, there are limitations to using Reddit uh, because the, you know, the moderators will quickly strike you down if you don't have the proper permissions and whatnot. But that also takes developing a community of your, of your own on Reddit. And then it's a matter of getting them to sort of share on your behalf. These are places that you can go. You don't necessarily have to build a community here. Obviously, Facebook is very big on building communities. Um, so that's a wonderful place. But we already know from Edison Research and other places about where podcast listeners are. LinkedIn is not that place. So don't take this and go, oh my God, I got to go buy a bunch of LinkedIn ads because it's not going to be effective for you unless you are dealing with entrepreneurship, if you're dealing with something business-centric. Uh, uh, those are the places that, yes, you will find an audience on LinkedIn. Go and buy your ads over on LinkedIn. Stop buying Twitter ads because that's not where your audience is. The Instagram one is especially interesting to me because of the years that I've been working in podcasting, especially these last uh, four or five years, uh, I'm hearing a lot more about the success people are having with their Instagram ads. Now, I've had zero success with my Instagram, uh, and I'm a sports podcast, and I know a lot of sports folks are ending up over on Instagram. But again, I'm a little bit older. I don't quite understand that particular platform. So it might take some more time and doing some research and really figuring out what works there. Uh, but Instagram is an interesting one. So that is the one thing for, with the caveat, like we said in the beginning, if you don't have a very large audience and, and, and you're just starting out, this sort of tracking probably isn't useful to you at all. However, I know there are people in our audience that do have a nice established uh, audience and a nice established following. And for those folks, if you implemented this tracking, what what I could find useful, what I what I would imagine would be useful, is information like that. If you see, boy, anything I do on Instagram really does get traction. I'm not doing much on Instagram right now because I don't know it well, or I don't, I'm, I'm, it's not natural to me, et cetera, et cetera. I haven't been doing it before, and so I didn't think it had much value. But here, the numbers show me that it does. Let me reinvest into that. Let me spend some ads over there. Let me hire my nephew to run my Instagram account, you know, or whatever it might be. But like, uh, that's the thing that I think 
could bring value from this sort of tracking for even mid-level podcasters. If you got four or five hundred, you know, a thousand people in your regular audience on a regular basis, if you're getting those kind of downloads on an ongoing basis, you could track and see which new platforms should you spend more time on. You know, that would be useful, I think. Similarly, uh, PRX uh, went out and they hired a company called Claritas. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. It might be Claritas. It might be Claritas. It's funny. I was going to say Claritas. Claritas. <laughs> like like uh, Santa Clarita diet, I guess, is how I was thinking about it. In any case, this particular company, uh, which we will now forever call something different every single time we mention their name. <laughs> exactly. Uh, helped sort of provide PRX with a snapshot of who their audience is. Now, this, I can tell you, is something that only if you have deep pockets are you going to be able to afford on your own. If you're a small podcaster, you are not going to be able to tap into the services of Clary, Clary Tatas. <laughs> but uh, what what they have done here is they've given PRX some insights. Now, PRX, mind you, is not NPR. But I always lump the two together because they are extremely similar in that fashion. PRX listeners have a higher income. Uh, They have higher income producing assets like stocks, bonds, and real estate. And they spend 10% more on average on their credit cards than the average consumer. They are difficult to reach in traditional media because PRX listeners are not consistently engaging across a single channel, TV, radio, print, magazine. They also have a psychographic preference for information, peer review, and recommendation over being sold products and services. These are very important. You get an idea of what your audience likes to do. Now, I bring this up because when we hear from Edison Research and they do sort of a similar snapshot of the share of the ear of who the listener is, a lot of these phrases that I just mentioned end up being reported by Edison as this is the podcast listener. And I want to point out that I believe that that is skewed by the fact that PRX and NPR podcasts have ginormous audiences compared to the rest of podcasting. And when I talk about ginormous, I'm talking about when Rob Walsh goes through and does the, if you've got such and such number of downloads, you're in the 2% of podcasting. That's what we're talking about here. PRX and NPR are in the 2%, but it's almost like all of their shows are in the 2%. And so their audience is skewing the view of what the entire audience of podcasting actually is. So their 50 or 100 or however many podcasts are on PRX skews the the sample size of the 750,000 podcasts that are available to listen to. That is that is a fascinating idea, Jay. I mean, what you're alluding to there, you didn't say it, but effectively you're suggesting that there is an invisible podcast audience middle class that we don't ever talk about or think about. Uh, yes, Joel. <laughs> I mean, like, there's, there's exactly there's what I'm normal, talking about. There's a quote-unquote normal listener that we never consider because our our psychotropic, psychographic, whatever, our demographic that we always talk about as the average podcast listener is this skewed version. Correct. And that's, wow. and that's what drives me nuts about all of these studies is because it is so heavily skewed towards NPR and PRX. And, and in some ways, rightfully so, right? I mean, if you have 
50 of the top 2% of all podcasts that are out there. I mean, you have, it, you, you then start talking those percentages. You probably have probably 30% of that particular slice of the pie. So it's a ginormous piece of the, of the ginormous audience size pie. Uh, if I'm making any sense, I'm starting to blend thoughts together here. But the point is, there is an upper class of podcasting that I believe, first of all, generates the most amount of revenue, <laughs> generates the most amount of audience, and is so far above that of the 750, let me say that number again, the 750,000 other podcasts that are part of the podcasting ecosphere. Huh. I mean, and they're right there, their audience is not necessarily your audience. No. It's Interesting. Not at all. What a what a what a man. I mean, and I don't I don't think you're wrong either, Jay. Like I'm literally I'm I'm running through in my own mind the individuals that I know that I've met from my audience over the years and what I know about their own profiles. And do they fit these demographics that we always think of as the average podcast listener. I'm, I'm running through, Jay, some of the podcasters that I know and have met over the years. Do they fall into this demographic that we always talk about? Well, listen. And, and yet, I know they listen to 50, 75, 100 podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, they are power listeners. Hmm. You're, 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 you're making, you're blowing my world up here, Jay. Well, well it gets even more specific, Joel. Uh, household income of PRX listeners is higher than $250,000 a year. I don't know about you, my friend. <laughs> I don't know many podcasters that are making more than $250,000 a year. Uh, no. <clears throat> income producing assets, 138 assets that total greater than $2 million. I don't know many podcasters that have assets that, that total greater than $2 million. I, I might know a couple of podcast host owners. <laughs> uh, urban versus rural. Uh, I don't understand the index 150 urban households, but I'm guessing that means they mostly live in the city. They live in urban areas, mm. not rural areas. That part actually might <laughs> uh, also include your particular audience. Let's just face it. The technology is going to be more easily found in urban areas than it is going to be in rural areas. It takes a longer time for technology to spread out. Well, and, and most of the people, period, are in urban areas versus rural areas. Although I will say, Elsie Escobar, again, here is a great example and one that I always think about because she talks about it often. You know, her, her family makes plenty of money. Money is not the issue. But her physical location where her house lives, uh, her house resides, excuse me, uh, is, is um, not reached by modern telecommunications, effectively. She can't get high-speed internet in any way there. So she's got like a, a, a data link, you know, a little um, the cellular box or whatever that she uses to connect and do her work. But she constantly has to think about bandwidth mm. and constantly has to think about her total download space. And she's banging that drum all the time because not just in America but across the world, there are many potential podcast listeners. There are many want-to-be podcast listeners that do have bandwidth constraints or access to the the uh, connection at all as an issue for them to contend with on a day-to-day -day basis. And you're right, Jay. We don't ever think about that because we keep thinking a podcast listener is a wealthy individual. A podcast listener is a cord cutter. A podcast listener is a... Uh, graduate school. 
again, I don't understand index 120 graduate degree holders, but I'm going to assume that means most of their listeners hold some sort of master's or doctorate or some higher degree than just a regular bachelor's degree or, or God be, or, or God save us all, no degree at all. Uh, all right. The age, uh, ages 25 to 44. Now that, that number will hold up pretty much across the board. But remember, if you have a household income of $250,000 or more, you are going to be an older listener. You're not making 250 grand right out the gate unless you're in some sort of high profile Wall Street stock brokery type sort of job. So you ain't you ain't getting 250 grand right out the gate even if you're even if you're getting that post degree, right? If you're getting that doctorate, if you're going to become a surgeon, take some time before you get there to just talk to all those residents who spend 24 hours doing their residency at the old well, ER. Or $400,000 in debt, too, before they ever get out of school, you know? Right. So, it, again, their audience is not particularly your audience. And this is something that I think it permeates through every single bit of research that we do. And it goes back to sample size. And it, you know, last week we were talking about the super listeners and how it was, the, the study was literally only one eighth of all podcast listeners. And remember, the way that they do these research is they're not talking to all one eighth of podcast listeners. They're talking to a smaller sample of the smaller sample of a smaller sample of the total podcast listening universe. I think. Research is great, and we need it, and research like this is great, and we need it, and I think that this is definitely indicative – there we go. That That's the cold, and I can't say that word. I think this definitely represents what PRX's listeners are, but understand PRX's listeners are not your listeners. So let's give folks some actionable advice here on that note, Jay. If you're listening to us – and this is ringing true (laughs) if your mind is a little blown like mine was this morning and you're like man i'm thinking about my audience in a whole new way this morning um how do we go about trying to assess who our audience is what so one of the things that i've been trying to do jay is to have i mentioned it earlier to have more actual interaction on social media ask questions don't just share your posts Right. Talk to your audience. Create engagement. Um, A good example I use on a regular basis, Corey Finneran and the Ivy Envy podcast. He did a great thing several seasons ago, uh, I think all season long, maybe even for a couple of seasons, where once a week he would post a photo of the team, something from a game, and it was a caption contest. Right. Just a prompt. Say, hey, caption this photo. And he would always get 20, 30, 40 comments at least. Guess what Facebook does with that? Facebook says, ah, your audience really likes these. So they share them more. They, the, the, the algorithm raises the level of, of, uh, engagement that they send that to more people in your audience, which means that more people comment on it. It's a, it's a virtuous cycle Mm -hmm. that can develop. 
now that might take some experimentation on your part. Uh, Jonathan Oaks and the Trivial War folks, uh, Trivial Warfare folks, they do trivia questions in his group. That's how he gets engagement. But because you stir that engagement, then you can go to them directly and say, "What do you think about X in the show?" What do you think about why in the show? Would you like more of this? Would you like more of that? Would you like less of, of whatever? But if you don't start with engagement that's fun and you don't create an environment where they're interacting with you anyway, you're not going to get any responses to your question because Facebook and Twitter aren't going to show it to anybody. Right? Exactly. And I think you've sort of, you sort of hinted at, at it when we first started this whole thing. It's all about understanding the interaction that you're getting from your audience and looking at that particular interaction and understanding who that person is. And no, you don't, you're not going to sit there and ask that person directly, uh, do you make more than $250,000 a year? Uh, do you own your own house? Uh, what sort of things do you buy? That's not obviously anything that you're going to do, but you can get a general perception. And if you're meeting these people out on the streets, if you're going to conventions and you're meeting these people and you see these people, you can get a general idea. And yes, you should never judge a book by its cover. However, you can get some general assumptions from a person just by looking at them and seeing exactly sort of what their lifestyle is, what kind of person that person is, what what kind of things that they would be interested in, what they're what they're listening to. And if you're getting interaction from people, uh, that will tell you a lot. If you're not getting any interaction from people, that will also tell you quite a bit. It, it should make you skeptical of your download numbers uh, is, is one thing. You know, if you don't ever get any interaction on your posts, if you can't get any traction on anything that you try – then, then you know your audience isn't there yet. You haven't built that following yet, and you got to kind of go back to the drawing board. You said you can't judge a book by a cover. You're right, Jay, but you can probably pick out the genre that it is. <laughs> yeah, that also true. Right? Also true. So that's that's the way to that's the way to look at your audience, to kind of you, – you, you can figure out the genre that they are. All right, let's uh, bring you a sponsor. Uh, we've been interacting with our audience, Jay, and getting to know what they want more of. One of the things they want is no dynamic advertising. They want direct sponsorship. And so we've got that. This episode and uh, all of the episodes until the end of the year, in fact, are brought to you by Sleep With Me Podcast. The link is in the show notes. You can check out Andrew Ackerman and all the work that he does there. But Andrew doesn't want me to talk about the show, Jay. Yeah, Andrew. Drew wants me to talk to you about Pogs. Dude, this this was the worst idea you've ever had. I I love Drew. Love his podcast. Totally supports podcast. Go listen to it uh, later on when you're ready to go to bed. This pog thing. I mean, seriously. No, it's, let me tell you something. I've had some really genuine moments. First of all, I've got a bunch lined up for the next few weeks. I'm very excited about some of the things that I've pulled out of the closet. Got some pictures of. You can see a picture of the one that I'm going to tell you about today in the show notes right now. As a matter of fact, if you go check it out, it's on our website as well. Uh, AlwaysListingPod.com. Uh, but uh I'm going to tell you about the board that I have, Jay. I still have this board. So the Pogs, board. Pogs are milk caps. They're those little round cardboard things that come literally out of the out of the bottom of the the milk lid. Uh, that's how it started. Um, it apparently spread from like Hawaii and California. I think originally went all over the country. That explains but it. The Hawaiians. You you would you would play it kind of like marbles. You remember marbles when you're a kid? You'd yep. have the marbles in the center. You'd take the shooter. You'd knock the marbles apart, and the ones that got out of the ring, you would win. Right? right. You'd you'd win. It was a t- make it take it kind of game. Same thing with pogs. You could play for keepsies, and if you used your your slammer, you knocked the pogs off the board. Then those pogs could be yours. You could win a lot of pogs by the end of a of a tournament. The board is what I'm showing you today. I had. 
I, and Jay, I should have sent you a copy of it so you could see it. Um, do you remember the Bad Boy Club? No. No, I don't it was like think a T-shirt brand. Uh, they were like the, they were like apparel. They had all all sorts of stuff. But the logo was like a guy with a, a crop top haircut, with a grimacing face like that, and he would like have one arm up, like one muscly arm up, and it said "Bad Boy" above him and "Club" below him. And the face of the character, this cartoon character, was kind of particularly easy to draw if you saw it a lot. And I had a lot of Bad Boy Club shirts and stuff. This was something I doodle all the time in my notebook. But my the board that I use, the Pog board that I use, the game board, is this one that you're seeing in the show notes. It's blue, and it's got the Bad Boy Club logo printed on it. I love it. And I pulled it out the other day, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. I fell down a rabbit hole, by the way. Oh, I guarantee Bad Boy, you did. Bad Boy Club, Bad Boy Club is still a thing. <laughs> They've got a huge presence online. I think really? they're going to be like Jinko. I think they're coming back. <laughs> Got to go Google this right now. I, uh, I'm, I'm all, I'm all about it. I'm looking for. If anybody wants to send me a Bad Boy Club shirt, I am down for it. I'm an XL or a two XL, please. <laughs> I do recall this uh, logo. Now that you bring this up, yeah, but it was like, uh, it was like Big Dog. You remember the yep. Big Dog T-shirts? Yep. Yep. Yeah, same, same sort of thing. It was the same sort of attitude. And occasionally they would all like the Big Dog. They would also do like slightly scandalous puns or like wordplay sometimes on their T-shirts. Like you know, so on the slammer, one of the slammers I I had said. Uh, it was a ba- it was a bad boy slammer, and it said "Give it to him hard," <laughs> you know, or like something like that. <laughs> By the way, anyway, Surfer Magazine said Bad Boy Club is back in 2014. That was five years oh, ago. <laughs> maybe they're out again already. <laughs> anyway, uh, if you want to know more about the history of Pogs, there's a link for that as well in the show notes. If this is like vaguely ringing a bell with your boo, like what if, what is Joel talking about? Go look at the board that I posted today in the show notes and then check out that link. The strange history. Did of we Pogs not talk Noel enough Floss. about Pogs? Were we supposed to like? We have. We, no, we went we're, on we're, Bad Boy we're, Club. We're all good. That's not we're really. That's good. not really Pogs. Uh no well but it but but I was specifically was drawing attention to this okay. board that I had this game board that I had which was the Bad Boy Club logo this large blue uh board I gotta tell anyway, you your I never, parents allowed also, you to have clothing like this this is oh oh my I think my mom I think my mom was just too innocent honestly at the time and I don't I think my dad is like totally oblivious honestly I don't think they get I mean I think they get it now. <laughs> I don't think they got that kind of humor. At By the, the way, Maybe. they they understand their audience because it says it right in Wikipedia: MMA, skate, surf, and motocross. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. There you it go. Was, it was kids who wore Vans. Well, <laughs> I wore, wore Vans. I didn't Club. wear Bad Boy Club apparel. Apparently, I didn't get into that. So, Jay, our final story today that I want to get to was one that came up a couple of weeks ago, actually, on Twitter. Uh, our buddy Aaron Mankey, he behind the Lore podcast, as well as the TV show, of course, and all sorts of podcasts now. He's got a whole um, you know, host of shows that he's behind. Um, he had a dive on Twitter. You can find the thread in our show notes here about comic books. He said he had been spending some time reading his old comic books, and he was struck by their similarity to the situation in today's podcast advertising. Many of the ads, he said, were drawn as comic panels, including even Marvel or DC characters interacting with the products, sort of like a visual host-read ad. Uh, And he puts a couple of examples in the thread. Here's one example of like the pre-recorded, standard, ripped-from-the-newspaper type ads, and then the next page shows you an advertisement that includes 
Batman and Robin in this case, Batman and the captive commissioner. And it's actually an ad for hostess fruit pies, but it's a full page of comic book story that plays out and, and does this. Now, Jay, he doesn't draw the, he doesn't actually say this, but what he's talking about here in this thread is native advertising. The concept of native advertising. Um, we think about it a lot today in television and movies, what, as product placement, right? Right. Uh, they're, you're, the CSI lab is up and they're researching the case. And what computer are they using? A brand new iMac. And the Apple logo is prominently displayed there, you know? Uh, maybe even uh, in the new James Bond film, they drive a, a, the, the new BMW or whatever. And I say BMW. It's not BMW. They have a, who do they have a partnership with? It's Ford and I don't know. I don't know. Whoever owns Ford, I think they have a partnership with. But you'll see it's only one brand of cars. The MCU movies, all of the Marvel movies have a deal with Audi. And it's all Audi vehicles or or the that family of brands, anyway, that are represented. Literally every vehicle in the movie that is shown at all in a recognizable fashion will be one of those models of cars. Sometimes... They'll even make it a plot point, right? Like, oh my gosh, the trunk on this Versa is so large. <laughs> uh, my favorite is when the TV show doesn't have that deal. So, like, my daughter has really gotten into the uh, Canadian show Heartland. Uh, and mm. we here in America can only watch Heartland a season behind, which is really disappointing. Because uh, I've totally gotten into the lives of Amy and Ty. I, I, those two kids. Those two wacky kids. Anyway... They don't have a deal with Apple, so all of their computers have a pair. That's <laughs> the logo. It's it is really. Fun. I love when I see the fake brands uh, on their on their devices. So sometimes I think that could be interesting in its own right. You know, like um, uh, who is it? Quentin Tarantino ties all of his films together with the kinds of cigarettes that everybody uh, smokes. Kevin Smith does the same thing. Everybody smokes nails in his movie. That's the brand of cigarettes instead of Marlboro um, or, or something. But this idea is not new, right? This is right. something that basically every medium – uh, uh, has gone through as they've developed. Film did it as they transitioned. They were at first just literally recorded stage plays, and then they were like, no, we could do more. We can make something native to the medium itself. Television did the exact same thing. They copied radio. They were just staging radio for a while, and then they said, wait a minute, we can do more. And eventually you got the idea that commercials in particular, advertisements, could be many television programs in and of their own right and that like when we jay you're you're the biggest event in your sport uh the nfl is the super bowl and why is it so big it's not the game it's the surrounding events it's the advertisements that are now draws in and of their own right every new ad campaign usually begins on the super bowl that's the ad the ad marketers have all decided that the newest campaign whatever it is that they're going to go all in on for the entire year will begin during the super bowl it's where uh, or or it'll lead up to it you know so like bud light for instance is a perfect example their latest campaign with the whole sort of the bud light king and he's got the bud light night and all that stuff that all started with a super bowl ad and then they continued that story through the season and they continued to build up to it and of course at this year's particular super bowl there will be some sort of big bud light ad that will culminate the story that you've been watching all year with the bud light king and and his 
bevy of Bud Light drinkers. Um, this is something that's that's very effective. Remember, Joel, you talked about TV and sort of how the evolution of advertising and how it all came to be. Our newscasters used to smoke on the air. They used to smoke their cigarettes while delivering the news and go right from the news story. Uh, President Trump uh, uh, declared a victory today uh, because he killed the ISIS leader. Uh, And by the way, you should be smoking R.J. Reynolds. R.J. Reynolds provides the best tobacco products in the world. Uh, That was literally the way that the news was delivered uh, back then. And they decided at some point, somebody came around and said, you know what? This ethically uh, is a little off. Like we really shouldn't be combining the news of the day with these advertisements. It's sending a confusing message. We should really separate the advertisements from the actual content of the news. And that's sort of where that started happening. And where we got to today, where we have ad pre-produced ads that are being thrown out there, the reason why it exists in that manner now is because it's cheaper. It was cheaper for them to do it in this particular manner. It was easier. They could, the word I, I love so much, they could scale this model to make it work for everything. They were like, oh my God, this blows us away. And what's funny about this is as a new medium was birthed in podcasting, it was like, oh, we could we could do this thing where, where we can actually make the ad part of the content. And it was like, oh, look at this new thing we just, no, you didn't. Like this was the way it actually started because it was much more effective. It was a much more effective means of selling the product and getting that return of investment. It was just not something that was easily scalable. And what's interesting about this, Joel, is we're not even 15 years into this industry. And already there's people like, oh, we can't scale this direct response thing. It just, it it works fine, but we just can't scale it. We, there's just no possible way we can get every advertiser speaking to every podcaster there's 750,000 of them that just won't work and then they throw their hands up there and it's and that's sort of it's funny a lot of podcasters do not have a broadcasting background i went to school to learn specifically about broadcasting so i have a very i shouldn't say very extensive i mean i went to school 25 years ago uh but i was taught you know Broadcast 101. I was taught about the history of broadcasting. I was taught about the history of advertising. I learned these things. And it's one of those things. There's probably a podcast about it. And if there isn't, well, there you go. You got a freebie. Go create the podcast <laughs> history of advertising. So you can you can get an understanding of exactly how these things work and why they work and why they're so effective. It's nothing new. We're not reinventing the wheel here. It's stuff that's been mm. around forever. It's just a matter of are you big enough to command something that isn't scalable? That's something different than what the advertiser is used to doing. Because if you are, and you can deliver a huge return of investment, which is basically what podcasting has done with all of the direct response advertisers, then the other advertisers are going to be like, well, wait a second. If they're having, if those guys are having success, we could really have some success and they're going to be working more and more with these different agencies. Like that's why a mid roll is so successful because they deal with larger podcasts. Now, what would be really effective 
is if we had some sort of, say, trade association that could work with maybe an agency that represented groups of podcasters. Now we can start working at a different level. And then that is something that can become a little bit more scalable. But the problem is, is you have people that work at companies like a mid-roll that will say at a conference, we're just not interested in working with 10 podcasters who can deliver this number versus one podcaster who can deliver this number. Right. So I feel like we're caught in the middle of this transitional period where our industry is too large to be left alone with only the host read ads and the old direct response stuff that we were doing in the beginning. It's too large for that. But we're not big enough to justify a true original investment in native advertising. So what we're getting right now for those scale those people who want scale, what we're getting is radio ads. We're getting radio advertising moved over. The Geico ads you're hearing on podcasts are radio Geico ads, right? right. The Burger King ads that you're hearing are radio Burger King ads, et cetera, et cetera. The vast majority, and even the ones that are produced specifically for streaming content in one form or another, they're probably also playing those same ads on Spotify and on Pandora and those sorts of places too. So again, it's not podcast specific. I envision, Jay, an and eventuality where you have still probably some host red ads, some actual direct sponsorship where where the just like we just did about the Sleep With Me podcast, we, we talk about what the sponsor wants us to talk about in the same manner that we talk the rest of the show. But then what most people go to is real native advertising. You get podcast-specific, genre-specific created content that is about the ad pre-produced by people who do that professionally. They say, let's make a little mini podcast about Tide. Let's make a little mini podcast about Diet Coke. That's the future. Well, and that's already happening, right? That's what Pacific Content is doing. They're creating those type of podcasts for those type of advertisers. The other thing that I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more of is, and trust me, this goes back to when I worked at blog talk radio and we were introducing the concept of dynamic ads. We knew that the dynamic ads that were being introduced were the same ones on radio. What we didn't want to happen and what we, what I will still fight from happening is the recreation of terrestrial radio in podcasting. That's not something anybody wants. There's a reason people are turning off the ads, despite the fact that the super users say, 53% say there's not enough ads in terrestrial radio. (laughs) Remember that. Uh, Despite that fact, there's a problem with radio advertising the way that it is. There's a creative problem. There's a levels problem. There's all sorts of different issues uh, with the way that radio creative is being done. There are companies like A Million Ads that work specifically with Pandora, and they're working with a few other companies to create better branded ads uh, that are dynamic and that are targeted, that get sent to people in specific locations. But again, the system that they're working at is very difficult to scale. You're talking about having a voiceover artist record a script for 50 different locations. It can become quite (laughs) extensive, not only for the voiceover artist, but then for the editor 
uh, and then for the producer of that of that particular ad, it's just there's a lot to sort of put together in, in something like that and to make work in an effective manner. Uh, I'm glad that there is a company though that is taking that head on, and I'm sure there will be more that will exist as we continue to evolve. But ultimately, we have to understand sort of there are pros and cons to each type of advertising. It's a matter of understanding what's going to work best for you and what you're willing to do it for understanding what ad is actually going to be available for you too. And we've had, we've had this conversation numerous times. If you've got 500 listeners that are all listening to an NFL podcast, your audience is not very valuable. If you have 500 listeners that are listening to a yachting podcast, your audience is much more valuable in that particular genre. Their audience is not necessarily your audience. Good job, Joel. <laughs> uh, you can find the links for all of these stories today in the show notes. Uh, go check that stuff out. Uh, get get yourself educated. Think about where your audience is. Try to interact with them more. Spend some time being genuine in your engagement with them, and that will foster engagement back with you. One more thing for you to consider uh, when we're talking about knowing your audience and how to market to them. You know, uh, I'm reminded of a great story of Danny Pena, uh, Gamertag Radio. One of the ways that he went and created his audience was he literally printed up flyers and would go to game releases and talk to the people that were waiting in line to get the newest games and hand out the flyer for his podcast. And then those people ended up becoming listeners to the show and and becoming big fans of his particular show. And his show is now huge. He's doing things. I saw he's doing some sort of, you know, he's basically the video game expert uh, for Cheddar at this particular point in time. I mean, it's a great, great job by Danny, and he does a great podcast. Uh, I got a knock at the door before <laughs> the podcast began, Joel. Uh, and it's those guys, um, they call themselves witnesses, I think. That's their whole thing. They asked me yes. just one simple question. They, they said, do you read the Bible? My answer was no. But they then handed me this flyer about, you know, listen, uh, th this flyer just asks, you know, how you view the future and some of the places in the Bible that will help you sort of understand what the future actually holds and whatever. I, I wasn't a big believer in their message, but what I was a big believer in was their method. We don't do a lot of going door to door and go, do you listen to podcasts? And quite honestly, again, knowing your audience, if they look like you and they have some of the similar interests as you, I talk to all my neighbors about the podcast. I've got a neighbor across the street who works at the fire department, and he's told all his buddies at the fire department about his neighbor across the street does an NFL podcast, which I think is just fantastic. This is something trick or treat. Halloween is this week. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason why you can't drop a little business card, a little flyer, something in that, something in that bag that the kids are all gonna dump out, and mom and dad are gonna have to go through, and they're gonna be like, "What? What is this?" It happens to be an advertisement for your podcast, and you got you got stickers. Yeah, throw some throw a sticker in that bag, yeah. man, with it with a link on the back of it. Uh, and then the That's kids a will love an idea, and then the kids one, will love one it. at a time. You know the the line from. Uh, Oh brother, where art thou? Is uh, we're not we're not wanting a time in it. We're mass communicating here, but that's I think we get caught up in that. Jay, we think about the fact that we've got you know 
1,500 people following us on Twitter or 500 people on Facebook or whatever it might be, and we think, well, that's where we need to put our effort in. But you're right. We all go to work. We all go to the coffee shop. We all go to the gym. We all go to PTA meetings. We all go to Boy Scouts or, or Girl Scouts or whatever it might be with our kids. There are opportunities to, to just say, hey, do you know do you know that I do a show? Are you interested in what I'm – are you interested in the things that I'm interested in? That's a great idea, Jay. Great idea. On that note, let's wrap up for today. Uh, if you happen to be doing a college sports podcast and you have interest in talking to Jay about some ways that you might grow that audience and expand your listenership, Jay, how do they get in touch with you? Podcasts. Well, no, that's not it. I I, I work in podcasts. <laughs> the the email address that you would want to talk to me about your sports podcast would be podvader at lockedonpodcasts.com, or you can reach me on Twitter at TheRealPodVader. My DMs are open, so it's very easy for you to slide right in. You can find me online at propodcastingservices.com. That's got everything that I do, or on Twitter at The Rogues Life, or podcasting underscore pro. That's my business account if you want to avoid the NBA fandom and uh, politics ringets on occasion. So uh, until next episode, Jay, uh, we have been your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Jay, and I am no longer that skinny guy who gets the sand kicked in his face uh, who had to take the muscle, uh, you know, vitamins. Sign up today for the Johnny Atlas system. We are always listening. Always Listening is a proud member of the Two Guys and a Rogue Network. You can find all of our past episodes, including more than 100 podcast reviews, at alwayslisteningpod.com. In Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. For help on your podcast, visit propodcastingservices.com. Our theme song is Enough from Bethany Rayburn.
Two Guys and a Rogue. I'm one guy. I'm the other. And this is The Network.